New York Times uh, op-ed columnist David Brooks wrote an interesting column uh, about a year ago on the theme of suffering. And he writes this. I'm going to put it up here on the screen so you guys can read with me. He writes, uh, we live in a culture awash in talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than a thousand books were released on Amazon on that subject. But, he says, notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. This morning, we're going to launch into a new series called The Last Days of Christ, which is really part two of a study we began last year on the Gospel of Mark. Now, I know that since moving here, we have a, we have a lot of new people, and if that includes you, I understand that you wouldn't necessarily be aware of that, but we spent uh, quite a number of weeks last year walking through the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Today, the series that we're uh, going to begin walks through the last half of the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd like for you to turn with me in it this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And uh, I'll meet you there in just a minute. It is so important that we spend time in the Gospels because it's there in the Gospels that we see Jesus, not as we want Him to be, not the politically correct Jesus, not the Republican Jesus, not the Democrat Jesus, not the middle-class white evangelical approved Jesus, not the urban black Jesus, but the real undistilled Lord of the universe Jesus who will comfort you, He will challenge you, He will even offend you, but if you believe in Him, He will turn your life upside down and inside out. Those of you who are with us for part one of the Gospel of Mark may remember that Mark's gospel divides really uh, very neatly into two halves. The first eight chapters of the book that we studied last year cover uh, the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The final eight chapters of the book that we're going to start looking at today cover just the final eight days of Jesus' life on earth. So you can see where Mark's emphasis is, and it's on these last eight days of Jesus' life as he travels toward the city of Jerusalem to face his date with a Roman cross. Now, thematically, I think we have that up on the screen now, the first eight chapters of Mark asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What's he about? The disciple Peter answers that question at the very end of chapter 8 when he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And then with that resolved, the final eight chapters ask the question, what are the implications of following this Jesus, this Messiah, which makes the quote that I used uh, just a moment ago from David Brooks on suffering particularly apropos as we start this series. Because as soon as Peter recognized that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, you see, Jesus began to speak repeatedly to his disciples about the suffering that he would soon face, and by association, they would have to face too. And he wanted them to be able to endure suffering and to come out on the other side of that suffering changed by it, or to use uh, David Brooks' uh, uh, word, formed by it. He didn't want them to be intimidated by it. He, He didn't 
He didn't want them to be scared of it. He wanted them to hurl themselves deeper into the revolution that he was starting as a result of whatever suffering they would have to go through. And you see, see, that's the thing. There is a way to go through suffering that leads to greatness. There's a way to go through suffering that makes you deeper, wiser, stronger, sweeter, instead of bitter, hard, and joyless. There's a way to go through suffering that drives you closer to God, not farther from God. There's a way to go through suffering that makes you more compassionate about other people instead of harder and more cynical. There's a way to go through suffering that makes you more clear and convinced about your convictions instead of wishy-washy and cowardly. There is a way. There is a way. And since suffering is an inevitable part of life and an inevitable part of following Jesus, it seems prudent for us to learn along with disciples as Jesus teaches them what we might call this morning how to become great through suffering 101, okay? So I want to start reading now at chapter 9, verse 2. We left off uh, the first half at chapter 9, verse 1. So let's start, let's pick up the reading now at chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James And John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, let's stop there for just a little bit. And I'd like to just challenge you to just loosen your halo long enough to admit that the theological word that best describes this passage is the word freaky. In English, it says that Peter and the disciples, like they were frightened, but the actual Greek words say, and I'm going to read it to you straight from the Greek text, they were freaketh out. That's what it says. Now, I want to ask three questions uh, this morning, okay? I want to ask this. The first one is, what do we need to learn from the transfiguration, okay? What do we need to learn from the transfiguration? We need to answer that question. Because it sets up the second question, which is, what does this have to do with suffering? And then the third is, how can we access what we've learned? Okay, so what does the transfiguration teach us? What do we need to learn from the transfiguration? What does it have to do with suffering? And then third, how can we access what we've learned? Okay, let's start with the first one. The transfiguration teaches the supremacy of Christ. This is one of the things that we need to learn from the transfiguration is that it teaches the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There is a suggestion here in the verses that we just read that Peter and James and John mistakenly look at these three leaders, uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, that they mistakenly look at them, Moses, who represents the the Mosaic Law, Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Jesus is the Messiah, that they look at these three guys as equals in God's redemptive plan, as equal. Now, I want you to remember that I said that at the climactic moment of the first eight chapters, 
uh, that that occurs at the end of chapter 8 when Peter finally realizes that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has long been waiting for. But I don't know if you noticed this, but but did you see in verse 5 how Peter referred to Jesus? He says says in verse 5, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three shelters here, one for each of you. Now, did you notice? Did you see how he referred to Jesus? He says, Rabbi, did you see that? All of a sudden, Peter moves from Jesus is the Messiah to Rabbi. And I think this is very important because Peter and all of the disciples and all of us need to understand too that these three aren't equals. In fact, everything uh, in the Old Testament, which is also called the Law and the Prophets, uh, everything in the Old Testament found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For example, if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, if you were to read his version of this account of the transfiguration, in Luke 9.31, he says that these three spoke about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. In other words, as Elijah and Moses and Jesus are all standing there. They're talking about Jesus' departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, that's really a very poor translation because it misses the real thing that this passage wants to teach. The actual Greek word that's translated departure is the word exodus. In other words, Elijah and Moses and Jesus are all there talking about his exodus which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. And Luke chooses that word exodus intentionally because he wants us to understand that in that one word, exodus, is summed up the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. The exodus. Do you remember the exodus? Deliverance from uh, slavery in Egypt, the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the blood through which the avenging angel passed by, the waters of the Red Sea, the leading of the Lord, the crossing of the Jordan, and the coming into the promised land, and then God among his people in the tabernacle. You see, in Jesus Christ now, the exodus is fulfilled. And so we see now that the earlier exodus was a kind of pattern that was pointing forward to Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get that? Nod your head if you get that. Okay, so let me give you an illustration, just maybe make it a little more clear. I want want you to understand that the earlier exodus was pointing ahead to Jesus, okay, the exodus that he would fulfill on the cross. So here's an illustration, and I'm going to tell you at the front end that this is not a, it's not a perfect illustration, because if you press it too far, uh, you know, it'll kind of fall apart, but but we're not going to press it that far, okay? So... Just remember, not a perfect illustration. If there's any theologians in the room and you get ready to criticize me on this, this I'm telling you, this is not a perfect uh, illustration. If you'd like to send an email about it this week, feel free to send it to Sean at CityChurchEVV.com. It'd be a good place to go. Here, here it is, okay? When my kids were little, uh, they started playing baseball, but it, but it, it was, it was T-ball, you know what I'm talking about? Do they have T-ball here? Okay, so so they you know, they're playing they played T-ball and they have like they have a T. It you know it's kind of like this. It's like, except it's like this this lectern except it's you know you kind of can put a baseball on the end of the on the top of that. 
And the little kids come up, and they try to swing, and they try to hit the ball uh, as it's placed on this tee ball. And um, the nice thing about tee balls is that they don't have to have a pitcher because the honest truth is, like, they could never hit the ball if there was really a pitcher. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I love my kids, and I was always at their games. Like, I mean, I made, I made almost every game that they ever played. But I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> Those games were painful to watch. Because here's the thing. When any kid comes up there and, and hits the ball, it doesn't matter where the kid hits it. It could just drop off the tee right in front of home plate, and it's a home run. <laughs> because no one can throw the ball to first base accurately. And if they could, the first baseman couldn't catch it. And so the ball's on the ground, and all the coaches and parents are starting to yell. Some kid runs up there and grabs it, and they start yelling at the kid. And, and they say, throw it to first, throw it to first. And the kid is like, where's first? I mean, because he doesn't know, even though the coaches have told him, you know, so many times where first base is. And then when he decides to throw the ball, it lands 30 feet away from the first baseman. So there are no outs in any inning. The innings end mercifully when the team reaches the agreed-upon limit for runs in an inning. That's why these games were painful to watch, okay? Now, that's, yes, that's, it's baseball. It, it is, it's baseball. But as those kids get older, if they stick with it, like they'll get better when they play in high school, when they play in college. But the ultimate fulfillment of what baseball is all about, what it was intended to look like, is found on a major league baseball field. That's where all aspects of the game of baseball come together. The hitting, the throwing, the pitching, the speed on the bases, the fielding. I'm telling you guys, I am this close to giving up on my dream of playing in Major League Baseball. That's where it all comes together. Now, T-ball is pointing to that. Now, imagine that a, a little kid, little little t-ball player and let's say a college baseball player are standing on a pitcher's mound talking to a major league baseball player. Are those three equals? No, of course not. The major league player embodies all that those guys, all that those other, you know, the t-ball kid and and the college kid, the major league player embodies all that they represent. Okay, so now, in the same way, kind of, not a perfect illustration, but in the same way, kind of, it isn't Moses and Elijah and Jesus as equals. No, 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 no. Moses and Elijah are there in recognition that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets, all that Moses and Elijah did and wrote about. He is what all of the themes of the Old Testament are pointing to. Jesus is not equal to the law and the prophets. He is the law and the prophets. And when you read the Old Testament like this, when you, when you begin to understand that he's the key that answers, he's the key that unlocks all of the Old Testament, you begin to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ and you find a new sense of awe for the supremacy of Christ. And it was so important that Peter and James and John understood that Jesus was here and Moses and Elijah were down here, okay? So the first thing that they had to get, that the transfiguration taught them, was the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the second lesson that uh, the transfiguration taught them was the sonship of Jesus. The sonship of Jesus. So it teaches the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and as well, it it also teaches the sonship of Jesus Christ. Back in verse 2, Mark says that Jesus was... um, transfigured. Interestingly, the the actual Greek word for that is the word metamorpho, metamorpho, which is uh, the word uh, from which we get our word metamorphosis, metamorphosis. Mark says that Jesus uh, was transfigured, that his clothes became dazzlingly white. Luke, as he writes about this, uh, he says that Jesus was fa- his face was changed too, and that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's interesting, but it far be it for me to criticize the gospel writers. I'm not I'm not intending to do that, but I, but I, I do want you to think about this in a little different way. Uh, in a sense, the transfiguration uh, or the word transfiguration. It's kind of the wrong term to use in this passage, isn't it? Um, Because the real transfiguration of Jesus happened at Bethlehem. He who was rich became poor. He who shared his father's glory before the world ever existed laid it aside. He who was equal with God the Father humbled himself. That was the real transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured into human form. And so what happens here on the mountaintop is, in a sense, like a momentary return to the glory that Jesus had before Bethlehem. And the disciples needed to see, and we needed to see, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh. Not just an outstanding human being singled out by God. You know, like a man who wasn't God in the flesh, but just a man simply appointed by God, like, say, a Christian version of Gandhi or something. They needed to understand that Jesus was the Son of God, God who had become man, and that he would one day return to the glory of the Godhead. And, of course, all that is underlined by the word of the Father in verse 7 when he says, this is my What does he say? This is my son whom I love. So they needed to grasp the supremacy of Christ. They needed to grasp the sonship of Jesus. And then the third thing that they needed to learn and that we need to learn from the transfiguration is this. The transfiguration also teaches the primacy, the primacy of Jesus' word. The primacy of Jesus' word. God the Father says in verse 7, this is my son whom I love. And then he says, listen to him. And in that, what he is saying is that there is no important, more important word to mankind than the word of Jesus. Now let me ask you, what is the word of Jesus? Well, summarize, summarize it all. The word of Jesus is the gospel. That Jesus Christ would suffer and die for the sins of humanity and he would be raised from the dead. God says, listen. He says, listen to him. Okay, now though, I want you to, let me just say this. Remember that, that listen to him. Okay, remember that. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But those are the three things that, uh, uh, that the disciples needed to learn from the transfiguration that we need to learn from the transfiguration. Now, 
what I want to do now is I want to move into the second question, okay? And that is this. What does all of that have to do with the issue of suffering? What, what, are, what are those three things that we learn? What is this transfiguration? What are those lessons? What does that have to do with suffering? And I want to uh, read the verses that, that, uh, that follow from verse 9, okay? Chapter 9, verse, Mark chapter 9, verse 9. And here they are. If you don't have a Bible, we, as you can probably see, we put them up on the screen. Here we go. As they were coming down the mountain, so Peter, James, John, Jesus, you know, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You know why? You know why? Because nobody would have believed it, honestly. They would have thought they were crazy. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you saw until after the, the resurrection. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, let me just, let's stop there again, okay? And I wonder how many of you have ever had you know, maybe what you would call like a mountaintop experience with Jesus. You know, just, it's like, it's like maybe you were at a retreat, or maybe you were at some kind of convention, or maybe you were in a great worship service. Maybe you were literally on a mountaintop, and you felt like you encountered Jesus in a way that you never had before. You ever had something like that? Well, in a very real sense, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they have just had the ultimate mountaintop experience when, where they've, they've seen the glory of Jesus in a way that no one else ever had. But then, as soon as they come off the mountain, they're plunged right back into the real world. You know what I'm talking about? If you ever had this happen, like you go on a vacation, and it's a great vacation, and you're so relaxed. It might get, took you a few days to get into the vacation, but then you get into the vacation, and you're just so relaxed, and it's wonderful, and you're having a great time, and you're wondering, why don't I live like this all the time? And then it comes time to go home, and then you go home, and you go back to work the next day, and it's all there, man. All the pile of stuff is there, and all the, all the petty issues in the office are there, and there's like 2,000 emails to return, all the problems. Or, or maybe, you know, like if you're, if you're a housewife, you get home and it's like, it's like everybody's got to 
empty their suitcase, and then all the laundry from that whole week has to be done, or two weeks, or however long you've been gone. All that laundry has to be done, and then the kids are hungry, and you got to run to the you got to run to the grocery store to get some food so the kids can eat. And you know what I'm talking about? Like you go on that vacation, you come home, and it's back to normal, right? This is kind of what happens uh, to the disciples. As soon as they come off of the mountain and had this unbelievable mountaintop experience, they're plunged right back into the real world. They confront a demon. The teachers of the law are there. They start arguing with the other disciples. There's this big crowd around them. They're all arguing. In other words, in other words, they come off of this great mountaintop experience, and suddenly they're surrounded by evil, and everybody's confused, and they don't have the ability to handle the challenge. What's interesting is if you think about it, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, if you think about it, the same thing happened to Moses centuries before. You remember? He goes up to the top of Mount Sinai. He encounters God in a way that no one before had. He comes off the mountain, and the people are down there worshiping a golden calf. Remember? Remember? This is a way for Mark to tell us that the mountaintop experiences with God are going to be rare episodic. Like most of life isn't going to be like that. Mountaintop experiences are really good. They're really important. But most of life is going to be a journey to the cross. Like one long journey to Jerusalem where the Son of God is going to suffer and die. That's an inevitable part of life. But the disciples... Like, they push back on that idea, just as some of you probably are right now. You're like, no, man, that sounds so gloomy that life is going to be about suffering. Well, I'm going to tell you, and I, I don't mean this to sound pejorative or anything, but look, if you, if you don't think that life is going to be a lot of suffering, you just haven't lived long enough. Live long enough, and, you, and I, you'll get to the same place where you're saying, look, life is about a lot of suffering. There are some great moments. There are some mountaintop experiences, but there's a lot of suffering in life, too. The disciples don't want to hear this, and so they push back, and that's what this conversation about Elijah was back in verse 11. Jesus, Jesus had just told the disciples, he said, he said, you know, don't talk about this until I've been risen from the dead, and they had no idea what this idea of being risen from the dead was about. Why didn't they understand that? Well, that wasn't part of what they understood the program of Jesus to be. They want Jesus to overthrow Rome and liberate Israel politically, which is why they ask the question, it's kind of coy. They say, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You know what they're asking? Here's what they're asking. Back in the book of Malachi, it is foretold that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord. Now, the great day of the Lord was the time, a time in the future, in which God would appear and make everything right. And so the disciples, they say, hey, we just saw Elijah up there. Elijah's here. It's the day of the Lord. Hey, it's time to do your thing, Jesus. Take over. Overthrow Rome. Restore Israel to power. What's up with all this suffering talk? You don't need to suffer. And then Jesus just lays him flat. He says, Elijah did come. The new Elijah was John the Baptist, and he suffered. They martyred him. And he says, I'm the new Moses, and I'm not just going to lead the people out of political bondage like the old Moses did. I'm going to deliver everyone from sin and death itself. But to do it, I have to suffer and die. 
But see, they don't want to hear that. And frankly, neither do we, because suffering isn't in our program. This is not part of our program. This is one of the primary obstacles for people who don't believe in Christ. Like if you talk to people who don't believe in Christ, you know, one of the primary obstacles is they say, well, I can't believe in a loving God who would let people suffer. But it's also a major stumbling block for people who do know Christ. Because anytime suffering comes into our lives, we freak out. Like some of us, if suffering comes into our lives, some of us start to look back over our shoulders wondering, you know, uh, what we did to deserve this punishment. And then others of us, we just get mad at God. Why is this happening to me? If you loved me, you wouldn't let this happen, God. I've been obedient. I've been moral. I've been good. You shouldn't let this happen to me. We freak out. Suffering comes into our lives. We freak out. Which brings us back to what we uh, talked about at the very beginning of this sermon. That there is a way to go through suffering without freaking out. There is a way to go through suffering that leads to greatness. And here's what the answer, uh, here's where the answer to our second question comes in. What does the the transfiguration have to do with suffering? Let me say it like this. Here's the answer. We have to be clear in our minds about the greatness of Jesus to understand the suffering of Jesus. That's why we had to go through all of that with the transfiguration. We got to understand the supremacy of Jesus. We got to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. We got to understand that what Jesus has to say is more important than what anybody else has to say. We have to be clear in our minds about the greatness of Jesus to understand the suffering of Jesus. Once we understand the supremacy of Jesus and the sonship of Jesus and listen to the word of Jesus, the gospel, that he would suffer and die for our sins, then once we get that, our hearts are captivated by the stunning, selfless beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross. He gave up all of the glory of heaven, all of the power, all of the praise to come to earth in the form of a man and become sin as he hung on a Roman cross for us. That's why we needed to know what the transfiguration teaches us about Jesus. Because you see, if we have a grasp of Jesus' greatness, then we understand that if he took up a cross, we will have to take up our crosses too. If the world hated him, the world's going to hate us for what we believe. If he had to suffer in order to get to greatness and resurrection, so will we. And if he has suffered all of that for us, is there any suffering too great for us to go through on his behalf? Understanding the extent of Jesus' sacrifice in light of his greatness, it allows you to go through suffering and to come out on the other side of it deeper and wiser and stronger and sweeter and more compassionate and closer to God. This is exactly what made the disciples willing to hurl themselves into the revolution of Jesus Christ. It's what made them willing to endure the unjust suffering that they endured just to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And legend has it. It's what made the disciple Peter willing to be crucified on a cross upside down, martyred, for his belief in Jesus Christ, once he understood 
the greatness of Jesus. Understanding his greatness gives us perspective of his suffering on behalf of us. That's, that's why we had to do the, that's why we had to learn from the transfiguration. Okay, last thing, and then we're going to wrap up. How can we access what we have learned this morning? How can we have these kinds of mountaintop experiences with Jesus so that we can come out on the other side too? Because we're not going to be there like Peter, James, and John and see this happen. How can we have those kinds of mountaintop experiences so that we can come out stronger on the other side? Well, okay, I want you to watch this. Last part of the passage. Uh, We just read this father, uh, he brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and the disciples can't figure out how to heal him. And Jesus asks that the boy be brought to him. He says, you know, bring bring, bring him to me. And he asks the father how long the little boy has been like this. And the father says, he's been this way since childhood. And then the father says this in verse 22. He says, he's talking to Jesus. He says, says, if you can do anything, like if you can do anything about this, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds to him. He says, if you can, like if I can do anything, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, oh, this is so important. Make sure you underline this. Make sure you circle this. Make sure you highlight it, okay? The boy's father exclaims this. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That seems odd, doesn't it? I believe but help me overcome my unbelief. Does that not feel like so many of us? And then as you, if you were to read on uh, the rest of the verses, Jesus does indeed heal this little boy. I want to speak first to those of you who are here this morning who have never entered into a relationship with Jesus. Like you've, maybe you've heard of Jesus. Maybe you've sat in church for many, many years. I don't know. But you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never come to a point where you have a relationship with Jesus. I want you to notice something very important that we learn from that little interchange with Jesus and the Father. Helplessness is the first step to a relationship with Jesus. Maybe I could even say it this way. Helplessness, not holiness is the first step to a relationship with Jesus. Jesus doesn't say to this man, he doesn't say, what? Help your unbelief. Look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. How dare you come to me with such paltry faith? You go deal with your unbelief, confess all of your known sin, purify your heart, get holy, get your life together, and then come back and talk with me. Mm-mm. This guy says, I'm riddled with doubt, Jesus. Please help me. And Jesus heals his son. The first step to a relationship with Jesus is faith in Jesus, not in yourself. Now, here's what religion, if Jesus was preaching religion, here's what he would say. He would say, you go get your act together, then come back. The father, if Jesus was teaching religion, the father would have said to Jesus, look, I'm a good person. I have no doubts. Now bless me. 
Christianity says something completely different. Christianity says that because you're a sinner, there's no amount of goodness that can merit a relationship with Jesus. The only way to Jesus is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to Jesus is to say, accept me, not because of who I am and what I've done, but because of who you are and what you've done on the cross. That's the only way. The way to Jesus, the first step to a relationship with Jesus, for those of you who don't know him this morning, the first step is not clean your life up. The first step is to say, I'm helpless. I'm a sinner, and I can't deal with that on my own. I trust in what you did, Jesus, on the cross. That's the first step to a relationship with Jesus. Now, I also realize that there are a lot of you here in the room this morning who have already taken that first step. You have a relationship with Jesus. And you want to have a mountaintop experience with him so that you can go through suffering and come out on stronger on the other side. You, like you want to be able to experience, to feel uh, the depth of the love of Christ, no matter how deep the valley that you're in right now. You want to experience that love of Christ in a way that changes you and that changes your insecurities and your fears and your oversensitivity to criticism and that makes you stronger, freer, more caring, more compassionate. And you're like, how can I have that experience, you ask? Well, I want you to think about something. Here in this passage, on this particular mountain, Jesus is referred to by God the Father as his son. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. But as we go on in this book, later on, we will see Jesus on another mountain and it's called Calvary. And he'll be hanging on a cross. And if you remember, Jesus, on that cross, he cries out to God. But what's interesting is that he doesn't call him Father like you would expect a son to call him. Do you remember what he says? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, not Father. Now, here's the answer to how you can have an experience with the love of Christ that changes your life. And it goes back to something that was said earlier in the passage that we just talked about. God says, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to his word on the cross. And if you listen, there on the cross, the supreme Jesus, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the Son of God, there on the cross, lost the envelope and the embrace of God's love. He lost his sonship on Mount Calvary for you. He became helpless on Mount Calvary for you. And to the degree that you listen to that, and I'm, when I say listen to that, I'm not talking about just like right now in this moment, listen to that. I mean, like, like every day you just keep listening to that as Jesus is on the cross and you hear him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you begin to understand as you repeat it over and over to yourself, like every day, as you do that, you'll begin to hear him saying, I love you from that cross in a way that you never have before. 
And then no matter how deep the valley, you'll come out on the other side a greater person than the one who went into that valley. Listen to his word. Would you pray with me? Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for neglecting your word. Forgive us for not remembering your word. Forgive us for not rehearsing your word in our minds. Forgive us for displacing your word with all of the other words that we hear, that we read. And not focusing on your word to transform our minds and to allow what we learn in our minds to become very real in our experience. Lord, for those who are here today that that have never trusted in you, I pray that in this moment that the truth, that helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that they would acknowledge their helplessness this morning before your cross. Lord, for those who do know Christ, I pray that we would listen more closely to your word. You said that you were going to suffer. You said that we were going to suffer. We don't need to be surprised when we suffer. But instead, as we listen to your word on the cross, if we keep listening, we'll be able to hear you saying, I love you, I love you, in a way that will carry us through anything that we go through. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. And it is in your name that we worship and that we pray. Amen.